people barely had enough eat to eat, sometimes did not have shoes to wear. That has changed in the last 40, 50 years to the point where we have almost anything we want. And now instead of having some new tennis shoes, we can have designer ones with bells and whistles and lights and you name it. Maybe they even have radios in them by now for all I know. Things have changed. And yet, living God's way is still difficult and in some ways made more difficult by the plethora of things there are about us that can distract us. But we need to have patience that after we have done the will of God that we might receive the promise for yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. We're closer to that event than anyone who has ever read this before has ever been because we're reading it right now. And we're closer to Christ returning than anyone who has ever read it before. So what do we do? We don't cast away our confidence. We need to be patient. And we need to live a certain way. Let's see what that is. Verse 38, Now the just shall live by faith. It's what you live by. It's not just something that is there, but it's something that on a daily basis you have in mind and live by. You walk in it. You're immersed in it. You feel it. Something is centrally located in your mind and becomes paramount in your life. And you walk to obtain it. The just shall live by faith. We'll understand more what faith is soon. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now I think we all want to please God, don't we? We would not be a part of God's church. We would not be struggling to grow, to change, and to overcome if we didn't want to please God. It simply would not be worth it, would it? We would do other things. We would go other directions. But because we want to please God, and because we have a certain fear of His recompense if we don't follow His way, there's a combination of factors. There is the fear factor, and there's the love factor. Both. We can't have a fear religion only, and we can't have a love religion only. There has to be a certain respect and fear that we might miss out on what God has to offer, and yet there has to be a certain faith that we can receive it. So if you start to draw back, God will remove his pleasure from you. You will not please him anymore. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible is full of information about what will happen to those with whom God is displeased at the end and when judgment comes. Now, judgment is already upon us. Now is the time we must be pleasing God because this is our period of judgment. If we don't please Him now, we'll not have another chance. This is it for us. Got to please Him now. Got to make Him happy now.
But we are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. There's got to be a strong belief. If you don't believe something strongly, you're not going to accomplish it. You have to really believe it. But how do you believe something you cannot see? That is a very difficult chore for any of us. Let's go on. Because he says you have to live by faith. Now what is faith? Chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. A lot of us have the idea in mind, if I see it, I'll believe it. Show me. There's even a state that has that motto, the show me state. I won't believe it unless I see it. That's not, from a spiritual standpoint, a converted attitude. We have to believe something without seeing it. Faith is the substance or that which stand under or supports the things we hope for. Now we hope for a life that is free of disease, of misery, of hate, of war, of degeneracy, of anything unpleasant. We hope for that. And indeed, Scripture tells us that if we are a part of the first fruits, but we will have no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more anything that is bad, ever again. Now, do we believe that? When we are living in a world full of misery, jealousy, resentment, anger, frustration, vengeance, and all those things which are work, the works of the flesh, it's hard for us to even imagine a world without those things. It's hard to grasp it. Hard to understand how you would even live in it. Because we are so accustomed to having to put up barriers against evil, against feelings, against thoughts, against people, things people say, against life in general. It's always there. We have learned to defend ourselves. Can you imagine living in a society where you didn't have to defend yourself because no one would be against you or after you or frustrated with you? Hard to imagine. But that kind of faith, that kind of belief is what supports our hope. And it is the evidence of things not seen. When you move forward in faith, you move forward into things where you don't know where you're going. You don't know the answers. You know that there's possibly an answer there because God has said so, but you have to go there without seeing it, without sometimes even knowing where you're headed. We rebel against that naturally and normally, don't we? Something comes along that we think we might need to do, or possibly the Scripture indicates, and we will do everything we can to squirm out of it, to disbelieve it, not go there, or wait and see. 
or whatever attitude we might come up with because we do not like to move forward in faith. As I've said before, if you want to go where you've never been, you have to do things you have never done. And we don't like to do things we have never done, do we? We like to remain comfortable. We are not, as human beings, that adventuresome. There were times in the past when people were certainly adventuresome. And because of conditions where they were, in part, they looked for something different. A lot of people started west from the east. They had a fairly comfortable society there. But certain ones had that whatever it is that makes you want to go somewhere you haven't been, see things you haven't seen. So they traveled west in spite of fearsome animals, fearsome people, lack of water, lack of food. Many of them died. A lot of them starved to death or died of diarrhea. That was, one, that was probably the most common death among trappers and mountain men and people who went west was death from diarrhea simply because there was not enough good, clean food and water, so they ate tainted food, and as a result, got so sick, they died. But there was something out there they wanted to see, so they went. Is there something out there we want to see? So we're going. We're going to do Remember, it's the evidence of things not seen. You know, if you know all the answers, it's not too much of a problem to go there. It's like starting on a trip with or without a map. If you have a map and it shows all the roads and their numbers and where to make the turns, it isn't too difficult to start on a journey and think I'll probably wind up where I'm going to go because I have a map to get there. But if someone says, I want you to go 2,000 miles that way and find such and such a place with no map, no way of knowing how to arrive there, not even sure it is there because you can't even see it on the map, you've got a much more difficult task. How am I going to find what is said is there? For by it, by faith, by hoping and believing in things they hadn't seen, the elders obtained a good report. Now what we're going to see in this chapter is people who received a good report. It's not going to emphasize those who went the wrong way, and there are some. It is going to emphasize those who did the right thing. That's positive. That's good. Because we don't want to necessarily see so much about how to fail as we want to see how to succeed. Failing is easy. Succeeding is difficult. And sometimes we go through a lot to succeed. But these received a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. 
we take the creation to a great degree on faith. Now, that's not what evolutionists want us to do. Well, really it is, isn't it? They show us what is around, and then they say, this could not have been created, it had to have crawled out of the ocean. And there are some great leaps of faith there, I'll tell you what. How did slime wash up on the beach and develop legs and hearts and mouths and so on and so forth? We heard enough of that in the 70s about archer fish and whales and platypuses and so on, so I'll stop there. But they request great leaps of faith from you. But it tells us in Romans that we are to understand God by the things that he made. When you see this awesome universe, this awesome earth, and all that has been created upon it, and how intricate it is, it could not have just developed on its own. There's just no way. So that's the first point he makes. Because when you see this around you, something, someone had to make it. It didn't just appear. You know, did podiums evolve? I'm standing behind one right here. Uh, it isn't perfect. I see a crack there. Maybe it's not completely evolved yet. Maybe it has another few generations to go before it becomes a perfect piece of wood. I kind of doubt it. I think somebody built it. I don't have to know who built it necessarily, or when it was built, or how it was put together, but I see that it's there. And if it's there, it had to come to me. Very simple. Somebody had to build it. No one here believes it evolved, but a lot of people in this world believe they evolved. And I submit that you are a lot more intricate than this piece of wood here. There are systems in your body that are incredible that work together to allow you to move around, walk, speak, eat, live, breathe, smell, hear, see. It's amazing. So we have the testimony of everything around us to say that there truly is a God. So what about specific examples then? Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead still speaks, or is yet spoken of. Now God said to do it a certain way. Abel said, okay, that's the way I'll do it, because God said so. Cain decided, well, wait just a minute here. What I have here is just as good and just as important as what Abel has. Now, isn't that normal, logical thinking? But God said, this is the sacrifice I want. Trade your carrots for a sheep and do it my way. But Cain said, no. Mine's just as good as his. I'm as good as he is. Now, what's the difference? Are sheep really better than carrots? 
No, not necessarily. But God said, I want it done a certain way. And that is what counted. From a human logical standpoint, some people think one is as good as the other. But what does God say? Abel believed God. Okay, that's the way I'll do it. Cain didn't. A different way. And then his attitude really showed when he killed his brother. It was, it was bad enough that he didn't do it the way God said, but then he broke another commandment by slaying his brother. Now, we can have bad attitudes, and we can spiritually slay our brothers too, can't we, with our tongues. We might cause some to turn away with our tongues. We must be very, very careful. And yet at the same time, we have to speak truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had removed him. For before his removal or translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch was in a world that was so sick, sordid, and sinful, that God couldn't stand it anymore and was about to destroy it. So he removed a man who was going his way in spite of everyone else in the world basically going the other way. He took him away from that, removed him, didn't take him to heaven. The scripture is very clear on that. No man has ascended except he which came down. People think Enoch went to heaven. No, he didn't. Enoch was removed to another place on the earth by God for his protection so that he wouldn't die when God chose to destroy the rest of the earth. God was so pleased with Enoch that he picked him up and carried him out. Why? Because in spite of everything that everybody said, Enoch believed God, lived God's way, and put up with all the criticism that came his way as a result. Like little Johnny, he was the only one out of step in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, he was the only one in step. Now, as we return more and more, little by little, to all the things that this book actually says, and the more we deny the pagan, the modern, the more we will be despised not only by the world, but by the rest of the church. Because they've quit growing for the most part. And if we really study God's Word and we really pray for inspiration and insight, we will continue to learn and to grow and they will be left behind. So instead of looking into it, And moving forward, they will simply do what most people do when they disagree with something. Criticize it, persecute it, hate it. Should that stop us from growing? God says we must grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Not stand still. So if we are not learning, not changing, not seeing things we have not seen before, then we simply cannot be pleasing God, can we? 
because part of what pleases him is that we grow and move forward. So Enoch pleased God. He didn't please mankind at all. God removed him from the evil to come. Now, he's made a similar promise to us. We won't go there today. Notice verse 6, which is very important. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If you're going to please God, you have to believe that he is a living being. He is not a fantasy. He is not an emptiness or a hope. He is there. He made man in the very image of God. Woman's close. Man is the exact image of God. He breathes. He lives. He thinks. He speaks. He eats. He drinks. Doesn't have to to sustain life, but he does it because he enjoys it. The living being, real, not a fantasy. When you pray to God, do you pray to a real live being who can answer prayer? And will, if that prayer is in, within his will. And the heart and attitude and mind behind it is correct. You must believe he is. And you must also believe that he loves you, cares for you, created you, and wants with all his heart to give you eternal life. That is his desire, it is his position, it is his policy. It's what he wants to do. Everyone in this room, God wants to see, have life eternal and happiness and joy. There is no one here that he does not want to see there. If you guys all want to talk, you can just go out back. It's okay. If you want to listen, you're welcome to stay here. Okay? I'm authorized to do the talking. You're not. Going on in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Noah is an incredible example. God told him to build a boat and there was no water around. Not only that, it wasn't a little boat. And it took him, what, 120 years to build that boat? On and on he went. He was probably the craziest man on earth in the view of everyone who saw it. Why would you build a boat out here? Noah must have believed something. How much stick to do we have? Now here is an incredible example of a man who stuck with a project with no rain in sight for 120 years. I've been in the church more or less from a child up for a little over 50 years now. <laughs> That's nothing 
compared to sticking with a building project for 120 years. Nothing. That's just being in the church, much less a project. We're doing a little project right now that can get dusty and frustrating and seem like there's no bottom to it. But how much perseverance do we need? Especially if there's something there that might have to do with God and the things of God and could be important. Now maybe it's a dry hole. There is always that possibility. But even if you think something could be, it's difficult when it's monotonous and difficult, even dangerous, and there can be a frustration level. And there are days when you don't want to do. But we can liken that somewhat to just life, can't we? There are days I don't want to pray. There are days I don't want to study my Bible. There are days I just assume be carnal, thank you, rather than fight, because we have to fight every day, and it's a difficult thing to do. Perhaps Noah, after about 80 years, says, man, I wish I had a little time off. I wish I didn't have to go build on that boat every six days a week. That's what he was doing, I imagine. Wish I could do something else. But he was moved with fear because God had warned him and told him he was going to destroy the earth. So he was motivated by fear. Now, have we been told by Scripture and by looking around at the earth today that the end of the world is near. God has told us to build a temple. Not a boat, necessarily, but a temple. Just a little bit different type of building, that's all. Are we moved with fear? Are we working very hard at building that temple, or are we not? We need to look to Noah, who is a man who pleased God and has a good report stuck with it, and went day in and day out to fulfill the job that God had given him to do. Noah is going to be in the kingdom of God. I want to live to see Noah. I'd like to talk to the man, see what he has to say. I'd like to know how he stuck with it all those years when everyone there was criticized, ridiculed, and laughed at him. You know, he had to really believe in God that's the only conclusion I can come up with. He must have really believed there was a God, and he really must have believed God was going to destroy the earth, or mankind on the earth, and he must have really believed that God would take him through it if he would obey it. If you did not have that deep core belief, there's no way you could stay with it that long. You just had to believe it. What an incredible example to us. Verse 8, by faith Abraham. Now, Abraham's a little further down the line here in history, but he says an awful lot about Abraham. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after 
received for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he went. God does not always play all his cards. You know, he could have told Abraham, I want you to leave where you are. <coughs> I want you to go to such and such a place. I am going to build a city there. And he could have given him all the details about how this would all work out. But he didn't. He just said, Abraham, get up and go. And he didn't even tell him where to go. And he packed up and left. Because God said so. Fast forward to the end time. God says, I'm about to destroy the earth, leave the cities, go dwell in the open places, find a place where this can be done, go there. And some of you read those scriptures and have done it, just like Abraham did. Now, I'm not going to clash you or me or anybody else with Abraham at this point, but at least we made a tentative step in the right direction, I believe. We gave up homes and lands and relatives, even husbands and wives, as Scripture says, in order to do this, because God said so. That has to please God to this point. Now let's be sure that having acted on that, we not turn back. That we not lose our confidence and our trust in God and the recompense of the reward that is before us. Because God revealed it. He's not revealed it everywhere. I mean, it's there. It's there to be read, but nobody reads and believes or heeds in the church for the most part. There was one who was loosely associated with us as a minister who said, you can move out there if you want because you like that area or because that's the way that you think you'd like to live. But if you're doing it for God, I want no part of it. If you think God wants you out there, I don't want any part of it. And he got rid of the association. I want to live everything in my life because that's what God wants me to do. Not just because that's where I want to be. I'll guarantee you right now I would not have moved on this piece of land in this spot for any reason other than I thought God wanted me here. I would be somewhere else where there are real trees and greener and more water, and less thorns and thistles, and better soil than there is right here. And based on my past, I've lived in places like that, and would certainly prefer them to this so far. But we are here, because God said, go, He'd show us a place. And we picked up and we moved. And we found a place. And interestingly enough, there are others who think that this place is important other than us. And who see the value in it. I find that quite interesting. 
So at least we're headed in the right direction, I believe. Now, obedience to God and his way of life is more important than any physical place, of course. How we live while we're here is going to determine whether we go the next step to a place of safety and lately and then ultimately into the kingdom of God. But you have to start the journey. You have to move forward. So he went, not knowing where he went. God just didn't show him the whole hand, just one card. I'll show you the others as you play. Isn't that the way it is in a game of cards? You don't see all the cards to the last trick, do you? You see one at a time. And you have to play yours, then the next one comes. You have to play yours to see the others. You do that all the way through to the end. It would remove the suspense if everybody just laid their cards down and you all saw them and then decided who won. You wouldn't have to play your cards. But God wants us to play them. So he plays his one at a time. He expects us to respond and play the right ones, the right order, and then he will keep playing. If we hold back, aren't willing to play, he shows us a card and we have to respond to it, his always trumps. He always plays the trump. And we have to respond. We can't play a different suit, can't play a different way, got to play his way. So he won't show his hand. He'll show a part of it, one at a time. So what do you do? Do you hold back? No. You go ahead and play your best card. You move forward. You're going to find out where you're going sooner or later, aren't you? By the end of the trick, by the end of the game anyway, or by the end of the hand, you know where you stood on that hand. You went forward or you went back. God says always go forward. You don't always know where you're going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So he went to the land of promise that God had promised. Didn't know where he was going on his way, but he lived there and it was strange to it. It's not where he had been, but it's where God had wanted him to be. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Ultimately, we look for the heavenly Jerusalem to come down that has foundations as stipulated in Revelation 21. On the other hand, there was a physical city that was built upon foundations geologically. wonder where we'll find that. looked for a city that did not yet exist. <laughs> How do you find that? They tell you to go to San Francisco or Chicago, at least it exists and you can find out how to get there. But he went out looking for a city and a land that he had never been in and a city that did not yet even exist. Well, this is history, so we can read it and oh, okay, that's what he did and it worked out good. But what if you were told Head out of here. Maybe even told, go north or west or whatever. I want you to go out somewhere you've never been. I want you to find a city that isn't there. A little frustrating, I'd think. 
I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I don't fully know what I'm doing. You don't fully know what I'm doing. You don't fully know what you're doing yet. Isn't that exciting? We know in part and we see in part, but we look through a glass darkly. And sometimes we have to go whether we know exactly where we're headed or not. And we have to do that in faith. We have to look at God's Word. We have to look at the facts as we see them. And whether we are completely right or not, we still have to move because we believe there's a God, don't we? And we believe that He is guiding and leading our lives because we pray that and we believe it. And therefore we go. And we do. That's what faith is all about. Through faith also, verse 11, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Menopause was a distant memory, completely dried up. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. She was way past the age of having a child. Abraham was way past the ability to conceive a child. Totally impotent. As good as dead. No life. But God didn't play all the cards. When God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham was only 75, and Sarah was only 65. In those days, they lived a bit longer, for the most part, than we do today. Now, life had shortened from over 1,000 years down to 500 to 250, and was quickly going down toward the 70, more or less, that we have today. But they lived a little longer. And he said, you're going to have a child, and your seed will become as the sands of the seashore. And at 75 and 65, they didn't really question that. Seemed like it could work. But God didn't tell them when. He didn't tell them how. He didn't even really tell them that it would be through Sarah. He just told Abraham... This is going to happen. So time went on and time went on. Sixteen years later, Sarah said, I'm not having any children and things are getting where this is not going to work anymore. What are we going to do? She said, I think I'll just give him Hagar, my handmaid. By some convoluted reasoning, back then, women thought if they were barren, if it was their handmaid they gave to their husband, they could count that as their child. That is kind of convoluted, but hey, it worked for them, I guess. So she said, doesn't look like I'm going to do anything. I mean, I'm, I'm in menopause now and nothing's happening and now maybe I'm past it. Why don't you take Hagar and have a child by her for me? Abraham said, well, okay, whatever you say, dear, or something like that. 
See, she didn't really believe it. The physical facts there did not support the idea that she was going to be the mother of the child that would be as the sand of the sea. So Ishmael was born of Hagar. And they must have thought that was the answer. Yes. Abraham, when God came to him and said, you're going to have this child, he says, well, you must mean through Ishmael. That was when he was 99. Time had gone on much, much longer by now. Must be through Ishmael. Sarah's old, I'm old. It's a done deal. said, no, next year... Sarah will have a baby. You'll name him Isaac, which means laughter. <laughs> yeah, right. They laughed. He laughed when it was first told. And then she laughed in disbelief. Sure enough, a year later, Isaac was born. When Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. And he was well up in years. And so was she. Now this was, you know, this would have been today in, uh, oh, what is it? The thing leaves my mind. Uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not. What if God came to a 99-year-old man today and an 89-year-old woman and said, next year you're going to have a baby? Put yourself in that position. You might not even have to be that old to laugh at that one. It happened. When God fixed things, he really fixed them. She had a baby, named him Isaac. Isaac grew up, became age 37. She died at 127. She was 10 years younger than Abraham, so... That made Isaac about 47, uh, 37 when he got married. And then Sarah died. And God had renewed Abraham. He married another woman then. She was probably roughly 100 years younger than him. She was of childbearing age and had six more sons by Abraham. And then he had a bunch of concubines and a bunch of other kids. When God fixes something, God fixes it. That's the way it is. When God says he'll give us hinds feet, he means it. I don't know what else he'll give us, but congregation might grow. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. He lived to 175. Now, he had to have been at least... 137 when he married Keturah. Because Sarah was 127 when she died, and he was 10 years older. So he, when she died, he was 137 years old. And for her to still be of childbearing age, she had to have been 30, 40 years old, something like that. So roughly 100 years older. That would be a scandal today, but that's the way it worked. That's an incredible story when you really think about it. Just, it's an amazing story. But it happened. Therefore sprang there even of one, 
and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Yes, Ishmael became father of twelve kings, twelve tribes that became like the sand of the sea too. We're still dealing with them. And Abraham's seed through Isaac became Israel through Jacob. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now, they received physical promises, didn't they? Noah did. He received physical deliverance from the flood. Abraham did. He received the children, the grandchildren. So they received physical promises, but the promises God really is speaking of that are the most important, they didn't receive. They died in faith, not having received them. But having seen them way off, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They were the people of God, and therefore they were strangers to the rest of the world. Now this seems to the rest of the world to be the most offbeat, strange religion there is. People who would simply believe the Bible and seek to live by it. You see, the strange Eastern religions also believe in life after death and immortality of the soul. So the strange Eastern religions aren't that much removed from the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics with their limbus and phantom and their purgatory and the souls in hell that might, in purgatory, maybe they'll get to heaven someday if their people that follow them send in enough money. That's how you get out of purgatory and go to heaven. It's weird. But we're the ones that are looked upon as weird. They were persuaded and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We have to admit that. We have to see that. We're strangers and pilgrims here. We're not like everybody else. We're different. If we try to conform to them and be like them, then we cannot please God because he says don't be conformed to this world, but be you transformed, not like the world. Any areas that we are like the world have to be changed. It's that simple. That means you have to give up sacred cows or sacred pigs, maybe I should say. All the unclean things have to be given up. For they that say such, think, say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. If we're a stranger and a pilgrim here, we're seeking something else. We're not seeking what is here. We're seeking something else, something better, something God has promised that we can't see yet. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from where they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. If they had thought about and thought about where they had been and wanted to go back there, they might have done it. But that's not what they thought about. They thought about where they were headed, not where they had been. Now, when they came out of Egypt, some of them apparently began to think, hey, it's tough out here, let's go back to Egypt. We might have had to make bricks, but they'd, you know, their blisters were gone by then, and they kind of forgot how hard it was to make bricks but they remembered that they had certain things there that were good to eat that they enjoyed. 
And when you're removed from something, it doesn't seem quite so bad after a while to go back there, especially when you feel like you've gone from the frying pan into the fire. And going God's way feels like you've jumped into the fire sometimes, doesn't it? So it's easy to begin to think about going back where you came from or doing something different than what God has laid out for us. But we had better be very, very careful if we begin to think that way. Because God is not happy with any man who draws back, shrinks back, begins to turn back to what he came from. How did James put it? Like a sow returning to her wallow. You can take her out of the wet manure and the trash and the dirt and the rotten junk around her, and you can hose her all down and wash her all off and make her look pretty, and you can put perfume on her. And as soon as you take the rope off her neck, she heads right back for the wet manure. A dog can throw up and turn his tail and walk away from his vomit, and head somewhere else, and then he begins to think. I ate that once, it wasn't too bad. And he'll turn around and go back and eat that which he just threw up. Now I threw up this week, and I flushed it immediately. Because all the smell of that did was make me want to puke more. Why would you want to go back and eat your own puke? But somehow, some way, when you're crossing the plains and the Indians are running around the camp and water is six days away and you don't have much to eat and the sun is hot, and you begin to think Boston was pretty nice. What has Oregon got that Boston didn't have? Some turned back. Some died. God tells us to move forward in faith. Not go back. We have set our hand to something here. We cannot go back. We have seen in the Scriptures what needs to be done. Now, if it takes a little longer than we might have anticipated, does that mean we shrink back? Or does it mean we should have patience that after a little while, God will do the things that we've read all through the prophecies He says He's going to do? Somebody asked me some time back, well, where's that wall of fire and that covert from the heat you read about in the Bible? I said, when we need it, we'll get it. It'll come. I'm here in a place where you would need a covert from the heat, right? If we didn't have swamp coolers and air conditioners and various things to artificially keep us cool, it would get awfully hot out here. 
So we need, at some point, a covert from the heat. Otherwise, our tomatoes just blister in the sun, don't they? You can still go to China Mart and get tomatoes today if yours blister and the bugs eat them. There will come a time when that is not possible. And God will provide what we need, when we need it, as we need it. I firmly believe that. And so do you, or you wouldn't be here. There are prettier places to live and more hospitable places to live. There really are. But we're here because we believe that God is doing something in the desert, which is what all the scriptures say he will do. I'm not going to turn back from it because I believe him. If you had been mindful of that country from where you came out, if you thought about it a lot, you know, you think about something long enough, you might do it. That's not a good thing. So they might have had opportunity to have returned. They might have done it. Back to Israel, I mean back to Egypt, Abraham back where he came from, and all they stuck it out. But now they desire a better country. In other words, they're always looking forward, not backward. Whatever is in the past is in the past. Leave it in the past. Let's move on. Yesterday's past. Let's move on. Whatever we did wrong yesterday, let's fix it today. It's the only view we can have. We cannot move backward. We cannot wallow in the past or in self-pity or anything else. We must move forward. Whatever happened yesterday is done. We have today and tomorrow to be concerned about. And that's what he says here in verse 16. They desire a better country. They're looking forward, not backward. That is, and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, we haven't seen that city yet, have we? Just like Abraham, who was physically told to go and find a physical city that did not yet even exist. We are told that we are having prepared for us a heavenly city made of gold and gems and pearls. A beautiful city, unbesmirched and without tears or crying or pain of any kind. No discouragement, no doubts. That's coming. We must walk forward and not shrink back from that even as Abraham walked forward across the deserts and whatever obstacles came in his way until he found where he was supposed to be. It was not easy, but eventually he found it. If we keep walking, we'll find it too. I was Abraham called the father of the faithful. Let's see another example. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried or tested, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. So Sarah had died. God at one point had finally told Abraham that it will be from Sarah. Now Sarah's dead, and God is, I mean, Abraham is told to go sacrifice Isaac. There's a card he hadn't expected God to play. He expected him to play that six of spades. 
God played the king of hearts. I mean, the, the ace, if you will. Go kill your son. Sacrifice him to me. How many here would be willing to do that? We had one son of promise. God said, take that son and kill him. I have sons. That would have been a tough one, you know it? When my oldest son was born, we prayed a prayer and dedicated him to God as the firstborn. Now, right now, I wouldn't say he was necessarily dedicated to God. He thinks he is, but he's headed off in a false religion right now. But I expect someday he'll come back to the real truth, not that which he perceives to be truth today. He's still very sincere, but he's very wrong, as I see it. But when he was younger, before he left home, or even later in life, God says, go to your son, you know where he lives, pick him up like you're going on a hunting trip. And then tie him down and tell him he's the animal you're going to sacrifice on this trip. Be tough. How did Abraham approach it? Verse 19, Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure or a type, actually a type of Christ, the son of the father who was sacrificed. All right, I'll kill him. But you promised that through Sarah, and Sarah's dead now, this would work. So he figured, well, if I kill him, God will resurrect him. That's a leap of faith, isn't it? You know, when you've seen as many animals and people killed as Abraham had seen through warfare, through age, through whatever, and when you see something dead, it's just plumb dead, isn't it? I threw a chicken out of the pen yesterday that had succumbed to too much heat, I think. And it just looked plumb dead to me. It didn't look like there was any life in it. If God had come and said, Daryl, that, that's a good chicken, that would have been tough for me to swallow. I'm going to resurrect that chicken. Have at it. <laughs> I'd have had trouble believing that one. If he asked me to kill my son, and I went out there and literally sliced his throat and watched his blood run on the ground, would I believe that God was going to resurrect him? We believe God. He says he's going to resurrect us from being stone graveyard dead. We've all seen dead, and it looks pretty final. I will be very surprised if in the end time we did not see a resurrection or two to physical life because God has done that in all ages so far. And I believe we will see it again because God works in patterns. And that which is done will be done again. Someday, someone in the church is going to die and be resurrected. In this life, in this age, before it comes to an end. I believe that based on the pattern I see in the Bible. 
Will that come as a shock to us? Do we really believe that he is and that he does what he says he will do? Will we walk forward in faith that God is truly God and believe these things? Abraham figured he'd be resurrected. Well, God worked it out a different way and didn't have to kill him. By faith, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. How as a father do you ask a blessing on your children and feel confident that whatever you pray over that child will happen? How would you approach that if your son came to you and said, Dad, I want to be blessed. Give me a blessing. What would you say? One of my sons came to me a few years ago and said, Dad, would you lay hands on me and give me a blessing? Kind of hit me like a two-by-four in the forehead. I said, well, let me think about that a little bit. <laughs> and it was about a day later that I actually did what he asked of me. You know, that was very difficult. Because how did I know what God has in store for my son, that one? How do I know God will carry through? Now, I wanted to ask God's blessing on him in a very positive way. But I didn't know the future. I didn't know what God was going to do with him. I still don't. But I did ask God to bless him, to guide him, to lead him in life to the point where he wanted him to be and where he wanted him to go. And I hope that God will fulfill that. But I didn't ask specific blessings that Isaac did upon Jacob and Esau. Mostly Jacob by subterfuge and lying instead of to Esau. Now God had made promises to Abraham that through Isaac this thing would go. So Isaac had a confidence born of a certain knowledge. And he could do that specifically, ask specific blessings. But he believed it. See, Abraham believed it, so Isaac believed it, so Jacob believed it. They continued to obey God. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worship leaning upon the top of his staff. He was cognizant enough that he switched the boys. Jacob said, oh no. Or, I mean, uh, Isaac said, oh no. Wait a minute. Jacob said, oh no, this, you got them backward. He said, no, this is the way I want it done. It's the way God wants it done. So they didn't always know, did they? But God made sure they got it right. We don't always know either, do we? But if we pray to God and we believe him, we walk forward in faith, sometimes not even knowing where we're going, God's going to make sure it turns out right. That's in this story. Move in the right direction. God will turn it out right. Verse 22, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. He knew that it would be carried out. He trusted them to do it. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. It wasn't his faith at that age. It was their faith that God would work it out because they saw he was a good kid and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. The king had said, kill them all. But they decided, no, this is a good kid. We're going to hide him in the bulrushes and save him. It worked out that way. They didn't know what to do. It would have been logical to be afraid, wouldn't it? Figure they're going to come kill your baby. Well, we'll hide him. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had everything going his way. All the wealth, all the power of Egypt was his. He would have been Pharaoh, or at least next to Pharaoh all his life. But instead he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a while. God's people are going to be persecuted and hated from now on. We've chosen to go that way rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin of this world for a little while. And we have to make those choices. We have to move forward in it. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He saw that what God had to offer was better and more important than all the pleasures and the money and the wealth of Egypt. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured his seeing him who is invisible. Pharaoh was visible. God was invisible. He chose God anyway. He chose that which he couldn't see instead of him whom he could see who was there to give him everything that he could possibly want. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. That was a crazy concept, wasn't it? If you'll kill a lamb and put blood over the door, uh, nobody in your house will die, but if you don't do that, they're going to die tonight. If you'd never heard that before, that would be... That would sound crazy. Now, to us, it's a story we've known for a long time, so it makes sense. But put yourself in their position. There'd be a certain fear. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, a saying to do, were drowned. They had no place to go. See, God doesn't always play the last card until the end of the story, does he? They had mountains on two sides, a sea in front of them, and Egyptians coming from behind. No place to go. No way out. Deadline was approaching very, very rapidly. What's going to happen here? I think there's only one conclusion you could reach. Mountains don't move. You can't walk on water. We're doomed. We're dying right here. Moses said, stand still. See the salvation of the eternal. The wind began to blow. That probably scared them too. 
and it blew, and it blew, and it blew so hard that the waves and the water actually parted. That takes a strong wind. And they walked through on dry land. Egyptians, ah, there they go, let's go get them. They figured the wind would keep blowing for a while, and they could catch the Israelites and kill them all. Instead, the wind stopped, water came in, drowned them all. That was last-second deliverance. Now, I expect we will be in the same situation and situations between now and the time of the end of this age. And in fact, when it comes time to leave and go to a place of safety, God says, don't even go in your house, don't go back in the field, just go. Because his deliverance will come at the last possible second. Always he tries and tests us. He's always tried and tested these people. They passed the tests and they were of good report. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, verse 30, after they were compassed about seven days. God says, march around the city, don't speak, seven days and the walls will fall down. How many people would believe that? What if your leaders stood up today physically and said, we're going to go march around Moscow or, Iraq, or uh, Baghdad. We're going to march around Baghdad for seven days and everything will fall and everybody will be dead. Send him to the loony bin. That's essentially what God did. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. What an incredible example Rahab was. She was just a harlot for hire. Anybody. Prostitute. That's all she was. But when those men came and said, God will protect you if you protect us, she believed it. And when Jericho fell, apparently her house didn't. The only thing left standing, I would assume. And they saw that scarlet thread or, letter, or rope, and they protected her. And she's mentioned among the faithful, who simply believe, not God directly, but those who came from God. Believe them. That's an amazing story in itself. But this harlot would believe two men who just came into her house. She's listed among the faithful who will be a part of the kingdom of God because of believing God and acting on what she believed. God can save anybody, brethren. If they'll just believe him, do what he says. It is that simple. Prostitutes are probably about as low on the societal order as anybody is or ever has been. But God saved this one simply because she actually believed he existed and he could do what he said he would do. That's all it took. She probably became a part of the congregation of Israel and lived out her life as an ex-prostitute among Israel and will be in the kingdom of God. 
Time's running out on both this sermon and on this chapter. I'm about the place Paul was where he said, What shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell so many more who had a good report. So I'm going to summarize this like he did <laughs> so we can get through before the tape runs out. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. His army was reduced from 32,000 down to 300. He must have had to swallow pretty hard there. You know, God takes these away and God takes these away and takes those away. So pretty soon he's looking out there to see thousands and thousands of enemies and he's got 300 men left. Okay, here we go. Hard to believe, isn't it? He had to depend upon God. God is going to put us, brethren, in these last few years in places that seem impossible. He is going to do it. That's the pattern. He's going to make us understand that God is God, and we must depend upon Him. Of Barak, he fought the army of Sisera with 10,000 men. They won when Jael drove a nail into Sisera's head. Of Samson, what about this incredible story of Samson? Of Jephthah, he killed his daughter because he had made a vow to God. That'd be tough to do. Next one that walks in that door dies. His beloved daughter was next through the door. How many fathers would go through with a vow to God on that one? My daughter was daddy's little girl. Oh, that would have been a tough one right there. David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel, quenched the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Escaped the edge of the sword, many examples of that. Out of weakness, we're made strong. Out of our weakness, we will be made strong through God. Wax valued and fight. Turn to flight the armies of the aliens. We will be called upon to do these things. Micah talks about us going out in front of the Assyrian when he comes into our land. Ready to do that? They're going to come with their war machines and guns and bombs. God says, go out before them unarmed, except by the power of God. It doesn't say it's just the two witnesses there. It says seven, even eight principal men. Any of you ready to go out before an army that's approaching God's people and tell them to beat it? Ready for that? We need seven, maybe eight. Ready for that? Women receive their dead raised to life again. Read about Elijah and Elisha. There is an end time Elijah. There will be a resurrection or two. It's going to happen. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, 
of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in half, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. How would we spoiled Americans handle that? Scrap of leather around us, looking for something to eat, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Lived anywhere they could live. Didn't have homes. Didn't have much to eat. Didn't have much to wear. The people of God righteously, patiently did that. We would say, well, you said you'd bless us. But God puts us through trials and tests. Now, he's going to show some new things at the end that he said he hadn't even told us. He has cards we've never even seen. He's going to play cards we've not read about. New things. So nobody can say, well, I knew that. It's going to be a new card. One you've never seen before. Yes, we're going to be blessed. I think those who are faithful are going to be blessed and protected. Those who are left behind in the tribulation are going to be persecuted, martyred, tormented, and tortured to death. But those who are faithful will be protected. Perhaps the exception of at least the two witnesses who it's already decided will die. But the rest, if they're faithful, will be protected. All we have to do is be faithful and we'll be protected. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. These are as good a people as have ever walked the face of the earth, obeyed God, went through trial, trouble, tribulation, temptation, suffering, horrible deaths, deliverance at times, but only after waiting on God to do it in His time and His way. And these all died in the faith, not having obtained the promise why? God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect, that is, in the resurrection. God values us, you and me, so much that he did not give reward to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to Sarah, to Rahab, to David, to Gideon, to Jephthah, any of those people, because he was waiting for you and me. How can we begin to class ourselves with this cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11? But if we're faithful to God, if we believe him, and we do things he says to do, whether it seems the way to go or not, because God said so, then he will put us in that same category. And we will be first fruits with those in this chapter and those of Paul and Peter and James and John. And we'll receive the same reward at the same time they do, and God will not put them as wonderful examples as they were without you and me.
He's promised that. He says it right here. Now, do we believe him? And will we move forward in faith toward things that we simply yet cannot see? For without faith, it is impossible to please him. But he does take pleasure. And those who walk forward and do what needs to be done, whether they can see all the answers or not. That's what walking in faith is all about. That is our challenge. And we need to patiently move forward and not shrink back in any way. And this thing will happen.